I want to begin this morning with a story, a St. Stephen's story. This is of us. And it, ha it happened in my time here. It was about five years ago, I guess, because I hadn't been here terribly long, and I'm coming up to the conclusion of my sixth year, when I said to the head of the Finance Committee, I would like to come to the Finance Committee meeting so that we can begin with Bible study. The Finance Committee chair was amenable. He hadn't thought about it before. They don't usually have Bible study at the start of the Finance Committee meetings, and I don't usually attend them. There are plenty of capable people around that table to address the needs and concerns that are before them. But I wanted to come and to invite us to consider a particular passage of scripture. And so, I did. Again, the Finance Committee was responsive to my being there, and they took their Bible willingly as they were passed around the table, and I asked everyone to turn to chapter 15 of the book of Exodus. In the 15th chapter of the book of Exodus, the Hebrew people have just emerged from the Red Sea. On dry ground they traveled, and have witnessed the waters be released back upon Pharaoh's army, which was in pursuit of them for quite some time, and they have safely arrived on the other side of the water at the beginning of their journey to the promised land. Now remember, their effort to get even to that point was laborious. They had been slaves in Egypt for several generations, had been accustomed to that position, weren't happy with being slaves in Egypt, but what are you going to do? And if you remember, Moses asked Pharaoh to let God's people go, and Pharaoh, being the dictator that he was, um, kept changing his mind on the provisions of the agreement. And so there were plagues that came, one after the other, until finally the Egyptian people were so busy, they didn't notice the Hebrew people leaving. But they did notice later and they set out in pursuit. And the Hebrew people made it across the Red Sea, which seemed impossible. And chapter 15 begins when they are on the other side. It wasn't long after they had been there, according to scripture, that they found something that they didn't have, which was fresh water. And they told Moses, we don't have fresh water. And so Moses put his staff in some water and it became sweet. A little while later, they complained about their new surroundings. They said, we don't have food. And so Moses took this up with God, and God sent manna. A little while, they complained again. They didn't like the manna. It wasn't enough. And by this time, they start to talk about wanting to go back to Egypt. There's even a portion in there where they list the food they used to have. They said, at least there we sat by the flesh pots. So they're recalling that at least there, and they, there's a list of cucumbers and melons and all these things, and all, here, all we have here is manna. And they murmured. And so God sent quail. They travel on a little further, and they come to a place where there's no water, and they complain against Moses again, and Moses takes the complaint to God, who says, go and strike the rock with your staff, and I will make fresh water come from it. And God does. So four times in just a little over two chapters, we have these scenarios of the Hebrew people 
being cared for by God, being in a position of complaining. One person at that meeting said, well, I should say, one of the things we did in the Bible study was I said, just what are some words that repeat themselves? Just what do you see in the in scripture? And one person said, murmuring. There's a lot of murmuring. And indeed, if you read it, the Hebrew people murmured and they murmured and they murmured and they murmured. So one person at the table said, you know, doesn't seem like people have changed much. There were other reflections shared, and one person voiced something that I thought was likely shared by some other people there. I don't know. But he had the guts to say it. He said, well, God acted like that in relationship to God's people back then, but God doesn't act like that anymore. Hmm. What is it that makes us afraid to believe in a living God? I would venture to say that it has to do with the idea or the experience that we've had where we've called out to God in prayer for something. And God has not responded, at least not as we expected. Perhaps that's why we're afraid to believe in a living God. Because God doesn't act like we expect God to act. In our passage from Numbers today, this is the fifth time the Hebrew people have complained against God. This time they take it up with God directly, whereas the others, they just went right to Moses. Consider, if you will, the journey that they have been through and the provisions that God has made for them, and yet they still find fault. And so in this story from Numbers, we have a very odd and difficult story of God sending snakes to bite the Hebrew people, some of whom died. And then when they call out for forgiveness, God wants them to remember that God gives that to and commands Moses to create a serpent and put it on a stick for people to look at and be saved. The idea that the same thing that can destroy us is the same thing that protects or heals us is made evident in this story in Numbers. It's a complicated story and not one that really you probably want to go out and just tell to people. If you share that that was in the Bible, they'll say, exactly. That's why I don't do that thing. But indeed, we do know about the power that can come through one source to both destroy and to heal, or to destroy and to protect. And there are ways in our lives that we know this intimately. Think of medicine. We willingly acknowledge that surgery can make a way. Surgery, that's cutting into the body with tools and foreign things and various medicines to make a way for healing. I saw a quote once that said, the chance to cut is the chance to cure. Seems hard to imagine. But consider the treatment for cancer, radiation and chemotherapy, poisons, 
given to the individual so that the disease will leave. Or even vaccines on a very minor level, where you receive a version of the sickness so that you don't get the sickness. So the idea that the same agent that can destroy as can heal is not a foreign concept to us. And I dare say, I think it's one of the debates in the gun conversation that's happening now. We know this on some level. And snakes were a familiar agent of that truth. You may have seen depictions of the pharaoh with um, um, a snake raised its head, you know, a headpiece where that's at the top. And the understanding was that the snake would spit venom into the eyes of the enemy of the pharaoh. But also the snake protected. The Greek god for healing, who I think you say his name, Asclepius, has a symbol of a pole with a snake on it. And you see that on medical badges and on ambulances and things. So the idea that the very same thing can both destroy and heal and protect is not a foreign concept. And what God was making known in that story from Numbers is that God is the ultimate one that has the ultimate power in both of those arenas. I want to share with you a prayer in the Book of Common Prayer that I don't ever pray. <laughs> you might not know that there's one in there that I don't ever pray. I invite you to turn to page 460 in the Book of Common Prayer. Jesus reminds us in our Gospel this morning that he is the one who can both destroy and protect, destroy and heal. And so I invite you to look at this top prayer on page 460 for the sanctification of illness. Sanctify, O Lord, the sickness of your servant, that the sense of his weakness may add strength to his faith and seriousness to his repentance, and grant that he may live with you in everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It probably seems evident to you why I don't pray that with anyone. When I go to visit someone who is sick or in a period of suffering and anguish, these are not words that feel comforting. So often we have particular understandings to suffering, that suffering is trying to teach us something. I hear people talk about it that way as they reflect on the suffering that they're either in the middle of or that they've completed or that they fear, they say, well, you know, I guess I'm supposed to learn, right? You've heard this. Patience, forgiveness, generosity, that there's some lesson in it. Maybe there is. Another thing that people often think about in suffering is that something has caused it. Is it God that has caused this suffering or is it my sin that has caused this suffering? And this has been a question in relationship to suffering since humanity has been. I think in particular of the story in the ninth chapter of John about the man who's born blind and Jesus comes and heals that man. But in the time that he is in relationship to Jesus, people are debating 
Why was it that this man was born blind? Who sinned? Him or his parents? Now, where did that question come from? We think about suffering in relationship to sin. I think primarily because we want to avoid suffering. And we think if we can do everything right, maybe it won't happen. So we eat well and we exercise and we try to not smoke or we try to not drink or we try to whatever because we say, I need to live a long time and I don't want to have the suffering. What caused the suffering? Why is it there? I don't know. I feel like this prayer feeds into those questions, those habits that we have as people to try to make sense of it in some way. We want to know why it happened. What's the point? And is there a way to get out of this? We fear suffering. We loathe suffering. But in Jesus, we see that suffering can actually provide the means for redemption. It's a foreign concept for sure. One that takes us a lifetime to engage It may not even be that welcome of news. But as this prayer illustrates, it's a desire for God to use the suffering for something. Suffering comes with being a person. Every person in here has had a level of suffering. None of us have been able to avoid it. And so this prayer says, God, just use it for something. Will you, will you just make something good come from it? Draw me closer to you. Remove whatever it is that's in the way. Is it something I've done? Will you make it evident to me and help me accept it and help me to do the work to move it? If it's not something I've done and it's just because I'm human, will you help me remember that being human is what you've asked me to be? That my weakness is not a sense of failure. It's who you've created me to be. That's really the beauty in that prayer. But it's hard to remember that when we're in the midst of suffering. Our gospel lesson today reminds us that God can use suffering even for our redemption. That God won't let it go to waste as some dark experience of our lives ready for the rubbish pile. Instead, God uses it when we're willing to draw us closer. And so when Jesus says that he will be lifted up for all to look at, he is reminding his listeners that to behold the suffering of God is to be invited into the redemption of God. When you encounter suffering, maybe you're in the midst of it, my prayer for you is that you might open yourself to what God can do with it, how God can restore you, protect you, and heal you through your vulnerability, through your brokenness, through your injury. We see this in the resurrection three days later when Jesus demonstrates that suffering will not have the last word. 
that suffering will not destroy us even though we thought it would. And when we know that, it changes our whole understanding. I have heard people actually say that they're glad the bad thing happened. They came to a new freedom. They came to a new creation because of what God did through it. So my prayer for you is that you'll remember this prayer. The prayer that God will redeem suffering. Your suffering, our collective suffering. That God will draw us closer to God through the very fabric of our lives. Amen.